This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello again, fellow diggers. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. I'm Christian Swain, and I'm behind the mic in San Francisco. As the name suggests, Deeper Digs in Rock goes a little deeper, digging into diverse topics, all connected to rock music in their own unique way. Please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. If you love the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project, then won't you kindly consider supporting the project financially? We have links to Patreon and PayPal at rockandrollarchaeology.com. A dollar a month, a big 12 bucks a year, diggers, and we will put it to good use. Okay, business handled. Uh, got one question for you. How low can you go? Problem is all inside your head, she said to me. The answer is easy if you take it logically. I'd like to help you in your struggle to be free. There must be 50 ways to leave your lover. She said it's really not my habit to intrude. Furthermore, I hope my meaning won't be lost or misconstrued. But I'll repeat myself. At the risk of being crude, there must be 50 ways to leave your lover. 50 ways to leave your lover. In 2011, Paste Magazine ranked the 20 most underrated bass guitarists of all time. Our guest today, Tony Levin, came in at number two. Now, bassists who are not named Paul McCartney are, almost by definition, underrated. So all the paste editors actually did was just list 20 really good bass players. And Tony Levin is going to be at or near the top of any list of really good bass players. You might have to check the fine print to find his name, but you've heard him. Tony has laid the foundation for dozens of hit songs and has graced over 500 albums with his plane. He can do it all with the bass. Swing it, slap it, smack it, and snap it. Play delicate counterpoint lines or bring the arena rock thunder. If you've seen Tony Levin play live, and there's a pretty good chance you have, well, it's memorable. That distinctive mustache and that bald head atop a slim and trim six-foot-three frame carrying what looks like an alien contraption of infinite strings. Here in the summer of 2017, Tony is on tour with one of his permanent gigs, King Crimson. The Crimson Prog Monster is rampaging across America with an act featuring eight elite musicians, half of them percussionists. 
Robert Fripp, founding member, crafty guitarist, and resident mad scientist for King Crimson, calls it the double quartet. Tony took time to chat with us about the tour, his upbringing outside of Boston, his first musical friendship with drummer Steve Gadd, how he met Robert Fripp and Peter Gabriel on the same fateful day, and a whole lot more. We'll also discuss a unique instrument called the Chapman Stick. Tony's mastery of this complex, amazing axe is one of the most interesting things about him. This was one of my favorite interviews so far on this podcast. Tony is the proverbial gentleman and scholar, and he is an absolute monster on the bass guitar, bringing the big bottom to lots of great music over the years. So, without further ado, let's talk, talk, talk with Tony Levin. To deeper digs in rock, Tony Levin. How how you doing this morning? I'm very well. I'm uh, speaking to you from Seattle, where we we and King Crimson had our first show of the tour last night. Yeah, opening so, night. The show went really well, so I'm in a good mood. I'm very happy. Hmm. I personally can't wait to see you this Saturday at the Fox Theater in Oakland. So uh, you've been in Seattle for a couple of weeks in rehearsal. So I, I bet you're about ready to head on the road, right? You're exactly right. King Crimson, I like rehearsing with the band, and we rehearse a tremendous amount. We're a very uh, conscientious band. We really try to have each tour be very special from the beginning. So it involves a lot of rehearsing, not just this last bit of time in here in Seattle, but we rehearsed in England before that last month, uh, quite a while. And the drummers rehearsed even before that. By the way, we have three drummers, so it gets pretty complicated rehearsing and and putting together the music. Uh, So it's a challenge, and it's good fun to be done with the rehearsals, and let's play some uh, shows. Well, that was going to be my first question. Why with three drummers uh, and only one bass player? Are are you really that good? <laughs> That's not the way the numbers work <laughs> out. It's not equivalent in in, uh, in weight, uh, bass <laughs> right. players and drumming. Uh, the first question, why three drummers, of course, is a, is a great question. Robert Fripp, who's the founder of King Crimson and, and oh, yes. kind of the, the musical visionary, decided to have uh, three drummers in, in this incarnation of the band. There have been many incarnations with the uh, challenging and unusual uh, lineups and this one i think his only instructions from what i heard to the drummers were to reinvent drumming oh reinvent rock drumming no problem yeah no problem so (laughs) so they every uh before every tour like they get together on their own and rehearse a great deal in addition to which they uh work out and they devise a, a whole bunch of strategies for how to how to play a song without just pounding out the same part they never play the same drum part so that's fun and and as me in the bass chair, interacting with the drums, I thought it, well, I knew it would be hard, but I thought it could be quite difficult. In fact, it ended up not so difficult because of the ways that I mentioned that they devise to divide up the drum parts. So I'm never playing with two bass drums at the same time. Where the pulse is really moves around fast within each uh, section of each piece, but uh, it is in one place, and, and that's what I play with, with the drummer who has the 
that part of the, the field that I want to lock in with. Ah, so that's how you managed to keep the three-headed monster in the groove, huh? Yeah. I, I think talking about it makes it sound a little uh, more technical than it is. I just listen and figure out what to do. Uh, but it hasn't been very hard, and, and um, one bass is enough. Really, it's, uh, in the 90s, we had two basses or two two touch guitars, and that was harder for me because uh, it is really as hard with two basses. It's doable, but it's a, an even bigger challenge because you have to find the right feel and the right part, but then also yeah, you both have to back of you. off. Mm-hmm back off and make room for the other guy. Yeah, I think Mr. Fripp is just messing with you. Uh, you're right, he is, but he's enjoying the ride. Well, hey, we'll talk a little bit more about King Crimson, but first, let's let's talk a little bit about you. Um, so, let's go back to the beginning and talk about your musical education. I, I know you come from Beantown, your, I believe, Brookline uh, suburb outside of Boston, and uh, you started playing bass at about 10 or 11 years old. Yeah, boy, you you did your homework. That's oh, correct. Yeah. I hadn't I hadn't thought about Brookline in a while. I think of myself as from Boston, but yes, I'm from Brookline and uh, started out in classical, playing the the upright bass. Upright bass, yeah. I don't know why I picked the. I know I just liked the bass, and it was a very good decision for me, even though it wasn't a very intellectual one. It didn't go beyond what I just said, but it was a good decision because now, after so many years doing it, I still really just like playing the bass. I like being the guy holding the low end together and and it's harder to put it into words than to understand i'm sure any listener can understand i like playing the bass and that's and i did when i was 10 and i do when i'm 70 well then you moved to tuba well yeah it was a little bit uh, of a normal path in the way back then in the 50s and in the 60s for bass Ah. players to also play tuba that's just kind of what mm-hmm. you did. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm not the only one who did that. And, and I didn't, uh, it, it was, I'll put it a different way. It's the only way to be in the marching band. Like, ah, yes. If you're in, in uh, high school and you're in the orchestra, whoopee, the orchestra, there's no way it's going to be very good. You want to be in the band. So uh, you got to play tuba to be in the band. Right. Not okay. to mention to march. Well, okay. So you need the tuba for the marching band. You uh, you have the stand-up bass for uh, the classical compositions, but then you add barbershop quartet. <laughs> yeah, I, did, I was attracted. Well, who doesn't like that? Come on. <laughs> oh, so Tony, I had you a little, were a music geek. Let's face it. I, I had a, a little bit of a barbershop quartet in high school, and many years later when I first worked on Peter Gabriel's first album in 76, the, the one of the ones called Peter Gabriel, uh, I managed to wangle in some tuba playing and some barbershop quartet uh music so oh, i know that barbershop quartet song wow that was the only time in my whole musical experience <laughs> it came I was able useful <laughs> to, i was able to fold in all of those things right 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 so then you go to eastman school of music in uh, rochester new york and uh, things get really interesting so uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about your formal education under uh, igor stravinsky <laughs> uh, i like that well, I went to East, the Eastman School. It was a very good uh, music school, and I played yeah. in the uh, – at that time, I was playing in the uh, Rochester Philharmonic also. So I was heading very fast in the direction I wanted to go, which turns out to be, again, a really lucky thing for me because I, I decided after a few years of that that it's no, I, don't, I don't really want to stay with that. I decided to veer off of classical into jazz and into rock. But what, yes, while I was there, I didn't study under Stravinsky, but uh, uh, Igor Stravinsky, quite old at the time, came by and conducted the orchestra, the school orchestra in, uh, in the Firebird in a concert of his Firebird Suite and, and yes. also other things. And it was really special playing under him. Oh, for sure. I bet. I yeah. bet. That, I wish uh, I could to say I studied under him, but but uh, the truth of it is, in, in those days, he had a uh, his protege Robert Kraft would come in and rehearse 
the, the orchestra for the week. And then uh, Igor himself would just, if I can call him Igor. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Uh, Igor would He's just come dead. in and conduct sure. the concert. So, so I only saw him at the concert. Right, right. Well, still very special. Very special, yeah. Yeah. Now, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, moving away from classical into jazz and rock. And I believe uh, uh, another friend, a uh, famous musician, uh, kind of helped push you along in that, uh, who was also going to Eastman School of Music, right? Oh, that'd be Steve Gadd, yeah. That's How lucky right. was I that uh, in this big school full of really excellent musicians, there, there was a, uh, Steve Gadd, at that time, a super jazz and rock player already. Mm. Uh, he played classical also, and he had no bass players who wanted to do gigs with him. So I uh, had the opportunity to, to do gigs with him, and I wasn't really very good at jazz. And he, he sort of, I wouldn't say he mentored me, but he, he kind of... He stuck with me while I tried to get the feel. The feel of jazz is very different than classical. Yeah. And, uh, uh, it just couldn't have been better training for me. It was a really good experience. Yeah, and you guys have remained lifelong friends. Uh, and you've, for you've sure. actually We'd, done some uh, some albums together, right? Many. We, yeah. we formed bands after that, and uh, we lived together And when we first moved to New York and, and did a whole lot of albums together. We toured together. Not that many tours together, uh, notably with Paul Simon and with a jazz band we had called Limage. And um, you know what? We, maybe we did some other tours that I've forgotten now. I'm sure we did, but uh, that was... Uh, quite a while ago, and we've done through the years many albums together, and, and we are steadfast friends for sure. Oh, that's great! Great to hear. So now, throughout the seventies, I believe you're mostly known as a session man. Let's talk about a few of the albums you were fortunate to uh, sit in on. Uh, I believe, like Double Fantasy, Lou Reed's Berlin, Welcome to My M Nightmare. Actually, you play on several Alice, Alice Cooper uh, albums. Uh, am I missing some? Uh, well. Probably, but uh, I'm, my memory's not that good. I, I, well, let me make it easier for you. Is it really true you've played on over 500 albums? Uh, it probably is. I'm not <laughs> the one who counted them. Uh, I do have – a few years ago, I tried to put a discography together to, when I started my website. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And typical of me, to put the discography together, what I had to do was go online and look it up because I didn't have a list anywhere of it. Uh, to me, it's not important, the number of them. Uh, the quality of, of the album you're on is what's important, and I was lucky to be on a lot of the special ones, the ones you mentioned for sure. Yeah, yeah. But just if you had asked me, who did you play with, uh, nothing comes to mind. It's not that I've forgotten them. It's just that I don't, like anyone, I don't really spend my day living in my past and thinking of, oh, here's what I did, here's what I did. I really, like all of us, I spend my day thinking what I'm doing today and what I'm going to do tomorrow. Right. So, so I need to be kind of prodded to, to, to uh, remember which of the albums were quite special. Yeah, somebody will have to count that up for you one day. I mean, 500 albums uh, is quite an accomplishment. And I, I guess so. I doubt I, it. Yeah, I don't really I enjoyed being a studio player. But I hadn't really found my, my life's niche at that time. So I was doing it until I had the opportunity to play live and go uh, touring with rock bands, which is what I love to do and which would, what I prefer to do. So I, it won't be me who counts up the albums. The, the number of albums, it's, it's not like gunslinging or getting wins in a sport. It's just, right, right. It's just there. I, I was lucky to do it. And, and I still play on lots of people's records when I'm home, when I'm not on tour. Nowadays, we do it by trading files, and it's wonderful. But what's wonderful about it is is not to say that I did this many albums at all. It's just to get to be a little part of some special music, whether it's somebody who's going to sell records or someone who's just putting out a record and not many people are going to, going to hear it. Really, some of the really great stuff I've done is not, not of the... Uh, you know, not in the realm of 
Alice Cooper and Lou Reed and, and the people you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know what? That's a great philosophy and how to uh, you know think about uh, being a musician. I mean, you have become a you know a first chair uh, bass player, you know, your first call uh, out there. So that's great to hear. But you mentioned in 1976, uh, you're chosen to work with uh, Peter Gabriel on his first solo album uh, after leaving Genesis, and you kind of pick up the Chapman stick at about the same time. Is that right? That's right. Wow, you've got the, the timetable. There's not many things about the timetable that I uh, am good at, but about the Chapman stick, I know that I had it then, and I, the reason I remember is because I pulled it out on the on the session, and uh, the, the producer told me to put it away. It was kind of daunting looking and really strange looking, and I did play it later that year, and I played it on tour with Peter when he started touring that music, but I didn't play it on that first album. And, and what's really notable about that album is on that same day in July uh, 1976, I met Robert Fripp and I met Peter Gabriel. And I'm still playing with them both and good friends with them both uh, so many years later. So that was a pretty special opportunity and day and event in my life. Yeah, because, yeah, you've pretty much made uh, a bit of a career out of being Peter Gabriel's guy and Robert Fripp's guy uh, between uh, King Crimson and, and Gabriel's touring band. But let's talk <laughs> about the stick so yeah. i mean you are the stick man uh I, I, i'm sure an artist is no artist is so recognizable with an instrument in the rock era than you are with a stick i, I know there's lots of stick players out there but when somebody thinks of that i mean certainly when i do when i think of that your face comes to mind uh so but first give the diggers a short explanation of the instrument Sure, it's a touch. It's the touch guitar style. In other words, you, you don't uh, pluck the note. You you just hammer on or touch the fret, and you can do it with both hands instead of with just one hand. So one is able to play a lot of notes. And and the, the Chapman stick, Emma Chapman, the inventor, got the idea of setting it up, it up with both bass strings and guitar strings, so you can play bass parts and guitar parts and melodies too, at the same time. And uh, many guys do amazing things of playing chords and solos and bass parts all on one instrument. Myself, I, I take a, a little easier approach and mostly just play bass on it. And, and mine has 12 strings. Some of them have 10 strings. Mm. Uh, it's a very unusual looking instrument, too. It's called the stick because it looks a little bit like a stick or a board. And you, you kind of hook it in your belt and it goes upright in a very comfortable way and one is able to play it with both both hands what what i found was very special to me when i got it which i think was in 76 is that the the bass sound that came out of it was in a subtle way and in a good way very very uh, useful to me and, and very different than the regular bass so as a guy who's playing progressive music progressive rock and looking for little tonal differences and advantages, just ways to, to take things in a different direction. It became a perfect tool for me to, to bring in, especially to bring it to King Crimson in those early 80s albums we did, the Discipline album. I was able to bring this instrument that, that locked in with the drums in a different way than the bass. And it's been very useful to me through the years. And uh, I'm amazed at hearing what other guys do on the guys and gals. There's some amazing stick players out there doing constantly surprising me with what they do on it. And uh, it's a very special instrument and has been very useful for me. Well, here's a little of Tony performing with this magnificent uh, 20th century creation.
wow, rhythm and melody in the same stringed instrument. Uh, amazing uh, performance, Tony. Tell us how you found this device and how you went about mastering it. Um, I'm still going about mastering it. That's an easy <laughs> one to answer because uh, when we're done here, I'm going to practice in my room. And, and uh, like most of the guys in the band, we're all practicing on the road and trying to get our stuff together, more together than it is. Uh, how I found it was, in, uh, again, in the, in the 70s, one year, uh, people were talking about it, musicians were talking about it. And at that time, I was playing the bass a little, a little bit in hammer-on style or touch. Mm-hmm. Yeah touch style. Mm-hmm. And so a few people uh, told me about it. And when I was, uh, I think, on the road and hit Los Angeles where the Emma Chapman is based, I thought, well, I'm going to go by and try it out. And I did. And it worked for me. And I, and I uh, got it right away. And it was, a, for me, a, a long, gradual ramp to become, to get the technique that I have now at it, because I I uh, introduced it at first just on simple pieces on tour with Peter Gabriel and then and then later writing material with King Crimson. So I took my time getting better at it, uh, although it's a very simple instrument to, to get started on. Um, and, and it's such a, with all those strings and all the options of fingering things, it's such a wide open instrument that it's really great for writing music and, and the horizons are large and stretch far so i'm i'm still very involved in writing with it and, and i have a group called stick men with three of us only three of us pat mastelotto is the drummer in king crimson one of the drummers and he's with me and and uh, marcus reuter is a touch guitar player from germany and the three of us really enjoy making music that's that pushes us hard because it's only three of us and we make very full for instance, we've done uh, Stravinsky's Firebird Suite, our interpretation of it. So we try to take advantage of all of those strings and all those techniques that are available on that instrument. Oh, very nice. And then you added drumsticks to your fingers as a new technique, right? Yeah, it kind of happened a bit later. Uh, uh, I was The story of that is in on the Peter Gabriel Soul album, we were doing recording the piece called Big Time. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, because that's a big uh, stick uh, uh, song there. No, no, Big Time. The one I'm talking about, Big Time, is... is, uh Anyway, in listening to the music, to the the piece, the new piece, I uh, thought it might be nice to have the drummer play with his drumsticks, Jerry Murata, on my bass while I did the left-hand fingering. And that's how the way I did the album uh, bass part. And then a year later, in I'm guessing 1986, when we were touring with it, I was constantly practicing during the sound checks with one drumstick trying to play this part. It was pretty hard. And, and one day, Peter Gabriel walked by me and said, why don't you... Tony, why don't you put drumsticks on your fingers and then you can play that way? And I, I didn't think of how I could do that, but with the help of my my bass tech, we were able to do that. Later, I named them Funk Fingers. I practiced a whole, whole lot with them, and I, I never got the agility of a drummer, uh, but still I'm, I'm able to do things that I certainly couldn't do with one drumstick, and, and I named them Funk Fingers. And then a few years later, just for fun, I put them on the web to just to sell them cheaply to some bass players and see if other bass players can come up with interesting stuff with them. Wow. All right. So yeah, working with Peter Gabriel's a steady gig of working with uh, Robert Fripp and King Crimson, a steady gig. It's funny that you met them both on the same day. Yeah, it is. Uh, and, uh, you know, your own band, uh, Stickman, along with a whole host of other acts, like I said, 500 albums. <laughs> I, I won't ask you to name a favorite, but what do you look for when deciding how to devote your musical time? I mean, you, you've got to be pulled left and right all the time. Well, for, for one thing, if you're a freelance musician, you're lucky to be busy. So I, I won't lose yes. track of how lucky I am. In fact, if you're freelance anything, uh, busy is good. Lately, in the last few years, I've, I've kind of honed it down. I'm in four bands. You really can't be in 
whole lot of whole lot of bands and, <laughs> right. and be available for the touring. So uh, Peter Gabriel has been, is quiet this year, but he did tour last year, and I've yes. been faithfully yes. and very happily touring with him when he does. And King Crimson for sure. And and Stickman, when King Crimson isn't touring and Peter isn't touring, then we book Stickman. We love to to tour and bring our our music around the world. And I'm also in a jazz band that I only started maybe four years ago with my brother Pete. Uh, called the Levin Brothers, we decided finally to return to the music we dug when we were kids, when we were growing up in Boston, and when we do this kind of cool jazz era jazz, we put, we did an album, and we tour whenever we can, and when we can is, is not that often, because I'm touring with three other bands. So lately, as long as things stay the way they are, one can't predict the future too well in music and in rock, but if things stay the way they are, I'm afraid I'm not available for a fifth band to tour because there just aren't enough months in the year. Right, right. All right, let's talk a little bit about uh, King Crimson. So last night was the beginning of the tour. I think uh, you guys are uh, on a North American leg here until uh, Jul- the middle of July and, uh, and you end with, a, I believe, a five-night uh, run in Mexico City. So what, uh, what can the fans uh, look forward to in this upcoming tour? Well, it's unusual. King Crimson is always uh, put, we're always pushing ourselves as a band, and and uh, there's no no difference in this. We're from, the most obvious thing people will see who, if they don't know the band, who come to the show is that there are three drummers, and we put them in the front row of the of the stage. So the whole front is uh, covered with drums, and and uh, one sometimes one hears a drum fill go a whole all the whole way across the stage from left to right, and other fascinating things. In a way, it's like a circus act. They don't juggle the sticks, but it's like, <laughs> wow. I know I'm standing behind them and I'm watching them. It's an amazing thing to watch. And then the five of others of us, there are eight in the band. The five of us are. Yeah, I believe he calls it a double quartet. If I my memory. I hadn't heard that. I didn't even know that. But it. it what it looks like, I think, to the audience is three drummers and then five other guys behind them. And then if that's not enough that's different, there's a lot more that's different. We're wearing suits and ties on this uh, on this tour leg. And last year we did the same. And, and we have an intermission. In a way, it's like a classical concert. It doesn't sound like one, but it's, in a way it's like that. And we, in a very formal way, we ask the audience, uh, this is not easy, we ask them to refrain from taking pictures and shooting video and using cell phones. And we kind of insist on that. And in order to... Oh, thank God. Yeah. I hate those things sitting up in front of me. Everybody wants to do that, uh, but it's hard. And it is hard. And we've decided that it's worth it to protect the experience of the concert for the other people who, who would... Of course, as you, as we all know, you don't want your your view of the concert to be affected by right. somebody in front of you holding up a cell phone. So we insist on that. That's another thing that's different. We do very difficult music. We do a, a huge range from improv to new material to the whole range of King Crimson material, which goes back to the 60s. And all of it we've tried to approach as if it's new music. In other words, we might not do it quite the way we did it last year. We're not just a cover band doing things the way they were. And uh, uh, it's also quite a long show. If the, if the venue will give us the time, we do a three-hour show. I think you mentioned that at the beginning of the interview. Mm. Um, the first one, uh, the run-through the day before yesterday was uh, three hours and 15 minutes. Oh, even longer. Yeah, it, you just run into trouble with venues if you try to keep them that long. They have union rules and things like that. Right. Uh, so anyway, it's, a, it's quite a, an interesting evening of music. And hopefully, I, and I think... I can confidently say that most people will will agree that it's not music that they would hear from anybody else, and there'll there'll be a lot of surprises from for them in uh, hearing just things that they didn't think they'd hear a band do on stage. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's a pretty uh, pretty crazy setup the way that uh, Robert Fripp has has created this thing and continually uh, reinvents it. And I and I think that's is, your point does. is that uh, and he's he's been doing this since 1969 when the when the first King Crimson album uh, came out. Uh, he's rechanged yeah. him pretty much uh, every couple of years and purposefully moves uh, musicians around. There's been a lot of musicians in King Crimson over the decades and yes. uh, uh, it. You know, constantly uh, is evolving, and and I think that's a, a great thing uh, about music. So I believe it's two sets and a kind of a long uh, encore uh, that you uh, you have there. So how is the wide wise wizard of guitar electronics? You mean Robert? Yes. Well, he's great. He's happy. Uh, uh, I can't tell you how he is today. I haven't seen him yet today, but uh, usually well, he'll spend. Well, last night the, was pretty good. Then he'll he'll spend the morning uh, devising a new set list for the day. So we'll uh, sometime this afternoon we'll find out what tonight's set will be like. It will be different than last night's set. Oh, like, so each night is a revolving set list. Oh yeah, last night there were four encores. We never did that before. It could be two or. It won't be one, probably, but uh, yeah, and, and we have so much material we can do that the, the material varies from night to night, which is especially useful when we're playing in the same place for two nights, the way we are here in Seattle. Uh, but generally, I would say, uh, first of all, Robert was very good last night, and he played very well, of course. He always does that. But he's happy on this tour. He's been, he's been uh, happier on this in this incarnation band than I saw him in the 80s or 90s when I toured with him before. Not that he was miserable then, but... I, I can't speak for him, but I'm tempted to say that he's he's feeling good about the the place that he's taken King Crimson to, and the the kind of resonance of its history at this point. Of, I don't know how many. How, when did you say the band started? Sixty nine. Yeah, nineteen sixty nine. So it's what is that? Fifty years. That's going, the band has been around. Forty, 40 years. years. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I know. Isn't that crazy? It, to me, it's it's a it it's really all of us. I know, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> To me, it really is a progressive music in the in the in a good sense of the word. And the the, the band is not trying to sound like a prog band of the seventies. Uh, it's trying to actually progress and and how well we succeed. And that is really up to the listener, not up to me. But we are trying to push ourselves as a band to be creative and to grow, but also as individual players. For me, I play in many different contexts, but in this band, that's my time to to up my game and and, and improve my technique and come come up with some new sounds and come up with some new bass ideas that I haven't done before. So I love the challenge of being in a band where all the players are trying to do that and. Um, it's my time to, to, to up my game, and it's a good challenge. You hear that, Diggers? If you don't have tickets now, you better go out and get them because you don't want to miss this. All right, let's 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 talk a little bit about your tour diary, which is really neat at Tony11.com. I, I, you know, I know you uh, have been a photographer for, for many years. In fact, you've published, I believe, two books of uh, photography, uh, Road Photos and Crimson Chronicles Volume 1, the 80s. Yes. Um, so – you know, let, let's take these two topics: uh, your interest in photography and the the road diaries, and uh, talk a little bit about that. Well, yes, photography, like a lot of musicians, a lot, a lot of people love taking pictures, and and pretty much from the beginning of when I was touring, I was taking pictures and got the idea in the '90s of of doing this thing called having a website, which was, was easy. Yeah, to, new, new then. Yeah, easy to do. It was yeah, fairly new and. 
and easy to do. What was hard was putting pictures up. So I started Tony11.com. At first, I did it as a way to sell my own CDs and, and seemed like a good idea, but but it, it didn't work out. People weren't interested in that. You had, by the way, you had to mail a check in. As a report <laughs> in those days. Uh, but what they really liked is when I mentioned stories of the road and then I put started putting pictures up. Now, putting pictures up on the web in, in those days while I was on the road meant taking a picture, of course, at the concert with this stuff we called film back then and getting it film? developed. In, yeah, awesome. getting it developed in a one-hour, let's say I'm in Hamburg oh, yeah. overnight in Hamburg, Germany, finding a one-hour photo place, get it developed, and then send the print that I want to Orlando, Florida, to FedEx it, where the web master lived, the guy who ran the website, and he would scan it and he would put it up in a huge uh, 220 uh, pixel wide <laughs> wow. picture, which was about as big as your thumb. And, and it, that was the biggest we were allowed to use in those days. So that's how I started the web diary. And people liked it a lot. And well, I, I still somewhere in the archives online are still those pictures. They're really tiny. But people especially, I found, liked seeing pictures from on stage and especially pictures of the audience. And I just thought, well, here's a nice uh, thing the web has given us where we can lower that boundary, that wall that's between the performer and the audience. Because really, I feel like we're there for the same thing. We're there because of the music. It's a shame that we we can't get together and hang out afterwards, but we can't because there's too many in the audience. So this was a way to kind of lower that that boundary. And it, and it worked very successful. And as of course, as technology changed, I was able to, to digitize, the, get an early digital camera. Actually, I wish I hadn't got it quite so early because they seemed good at the time, the pictures. And, and somewhere in the mid-90s to the end of the 90s, my pictures really take a dip. I found out later when I started uh, trying to print them large for exhibition, those early digital ones were pretty horrible, but very useful for the web. So so I've had this ongoing uh, website for a long time, and, and I stopped trying to sell much on it. And, and people enjoy seeing the, uh, the stories from behind the scenes on tour and pictures of themselves in the audience. Well, you, uh, you've got quite an eye, you know, uh, visually, uh, framing-wise, composition. You're very some, kind. Some You're very, very nice photography. But you also pick up on some really fun, interesting things. Yeah, definitely backstage and uh, uh, the band themselves and obviously audience member. But I, I was going through some of it uh, yesterday and today and uh, noticed, uh, you know, there's a little bit of humor there, too. Uh, uh, one uh, picture comes to mind, the Orlando dog food that shows up there. Oops, oh, I don't remember. Wow. <laughs> Lynn, really? Yeah, yeah. It was, I, it, it, this was in the Berlin diary entry uh, in the writing session that you had. That was probably a year ago. You may not remember, but there's this. I, I don't remember. It, Orlando happens in the sauce. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And, and, and uh, it, there is probably quite a bit of humor on, on the tour because there's quite a bit of humor in the band not unlike any band i've seen is that we joke around a lot and, and king crimson even though our music is very serious and very complex the guys are there are really lots some funny guys in this band and, and we enjoy clowning around on peter gabriel's tours maybe even more so a lot of fun a lot of joking and oh if, yeah with if the big my that, that uh, peter time. brings there's always this sort of childlike quality to yeah you're right stuff yeah I can and, see and as for my pictures i i I laugh when you say I have a good eye for it because uh, you should see the ones I throw out. Probably, uh, oh, every I, pick, I pick one out of twenty, and the others are horrible. Yeah, that's with everybody, of yeah. course, of course. Now you've also written a, a book on. Well, it's called Beyond the Bass Clef, and it seems like it's maybe an instructional book, but it's not. It's more a, a kind of a philosophy with uh, with life in music. 
Yes, I did that quite a few years ago, and I, I wanted to present stories or uh, little snippets of what it's like on the road and what it's like in the studio. But uh, yes, for bass players, but not talking about how to play the bass at all. That's how I started it, and I kind of assembled some stories, some drawings, even some uh, God knows what I put in there. And uh, it's so long ago that I did it. I'll have to take a look at it and, and see what the book is like. But it was it was a new experience for me putting out a book and having an editor and and learning what writers know is it's really really a lot of work getting it fine tuned and getting it the way it should be to come out and it was a good thing i'm glad i did it much later i did a poetry book so i have a second book out and by that time at least i knew the other work that would be involved and it's a great great undertaking to write any kind of book i have a lot of, a lot of respect for other people who do it and um, it was fun jumping into that field well, you are a multifaceted uh, artist, and uh, that's my point here. Is Now, uh, just so you, uh, our friends out there know, Beyond the Bass Clef is out of print, but you can find used versions on uh, Amazon. And just so you know, Tony, there is a new version, a new um, copy that is available for $1,000 on Amazon. No. Yes. Are you serious? <laughs> I'm serious. Oh, well, it's... That's interesting. I know. It's pretty crazy, $1,000. Anyway, uh, uh, you know what? I'm, how, I'm, how important the author is. I'm going to go into my storage and get out to the last couple of hundred Start of them. Start putting them on Amazon. No, no I won't. You know what? The reason I stopped selling them and the reason they're not legitimately for sale anymore is because it's a funny thing. The way I had them stored, the glue holding the binding together dried up. I didn't know that until one day I opened one wide, one day many years after they had been produced. Uh, I opened the binding up, and when you open the binding, the book kind of divides in two. You know what I mean? That binding, which should be flexible, uh, got hard, and, and, it, and it, it ruined the quality of the book. So I, there you go. They're good for, for looking at on a coffee table, but, but the, the ones that came from my storage are no longer worth selling. So I had to take it off uh, the market. I could, of course, reprint it and... Um, I, I face that when I when I get home and have, uh, let's say, a month of, of, well, what am I going to do? What project am I going to do? And and this always happens when confronted with the option of revisiting an old project and getting it better or doing something new. I always prefer the new thing. So I, it's very unlikely that I will go back and reprint the, uh, take the, take the, the, weeks and months that it takes to do that right more likely i'd rather write a new book that's or right write new in the future right yeah, yeah 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 all right so king crimson uh started last night in seattle and uh, will end this leg mexico city on uh july 19th with a five night run and then in august i believe you're back out with stick men Yes, King Crimson takes a break, and uh, we, uh, first I'll do this music camp that we would do, wonderful music camp up in the Catskills of New York State, and it's become pretty special through the years. It's put on by Adrian Ballou and uh, Adrian also Ballou, also ex King Crimson. Yes, wonderful guitar player, mm -hmm. and Pat Mastelotto, drummer of King Crimson, and myself. The three of us we call three of a perfect trio. What do we call three of a perfect pair camp? And. Uh, uh, we have a wonderful time with about 70, 80, 90 campers who are, who are we call them campers, they're musicians. And then we'll go right on the road. We'll do a concert at the end of that and, and Stickman will head right out on the road for pretty much uh, most of August and into September. And that'll be great fun. Yeah, and I'm sure album number 501 is in there as well. <laughs> so anything else, uh, Tony, that uh, you got going? I mean, that there is a lot. Uh, you are constantly moving. 
Well, you're very kind. I, I don't uh, think too far in the future when I'm on a tour like this because uh, yeah, they, it's in, it's all encompassing, especially the early stages where, where we're, we have all this new music and I got the instrument in the hotel room and I got to practice and be sure I'm up to speed for tonight's show. So I'm not my 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 thoughts aren't with uh, what I'll do after this tour, but uh, it's a very special tour. I'm really happy to be on it and uh, and and frankly after. King Crimson ends this leg, as you said, in Mexico in late July. Uh, there'll be some other things, but King Crimson will pick up again in October and November. I don't have those tour dates yet, but we will tour uh, again later this year, and that's exciting. Well, we will keep an eye on you, Diggers. Keep an eye on uh, Tony Levin uh, and King Crimson. Uh, make sure that uh, you get a ticket to go see this uh, tour. I've gotten some uh, previews of it, and uh, it is exciting. I can't wait to see you uh, this Saturday. Tony, we better let you get uh, to practicing those hammer-ons so you're ready for tonight. Thank you for having me, and, and I really appreciate all the the work you did to be prepared and understand what I'm about. It really makes it a pleasure to talk to you, and, and it's much appreciated. Oh, well, thank you. Well, hey, uh, thanks for being with us today on Deeper Digs and Rock. You are a musician's musician, and we will always keep an eye and ear out for uh, what you've got going out there. So get thank to you. it. We'll see you in a couple of days. Thank you very much, Christian. Excuse me, you're wearing out my schwadavie, grabbing those good years again, I want to be alone. Wow, that was awesome. Thank you, Tony. We asked you at the start, how low can you go? Well, if you're not getting down with Tony Levin on the bass, you've still got a little bit lower to go. It was a great time today, delving into Tony's many pursuits. 500 albums, I'm still blown away by that. Please check out his road diary at TonyLevin.com. It's got over 400 archived tour pages and thousands of photos going back to 1997. Uh, yes, Tony had a blog before there were blogs. And if anybody wants to buy me that $1,000 copy of Beyond the Bass Clef, uh, we will give it a loving home as part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project's permanent collection. We thank Tony Levin for sharing his time with us. We wish him well pushing the envelope with King Crimson, Peter Gabriel, the Stickman, and with all of his work. And we thank you for stopping by today. I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. See you soon. Until then, keep up the rockin'.
looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rocks, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.